Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. High Five Casino. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at highfivecasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas, and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumberFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Uh, that's our super producer, the one and only Mr. Max Williams. My name is Ben. And who who is that lovely man I see on the other side of Zoom call? Who is that guy? Who, who me? <laughs> little, little, little old me? That's, it's me, Noel Brown. Um, that's the first time I think I've said my last name on, on the show. Maybe it's not. My last name is, in fact, Brown. I have a very distinct memory of being uh, in school, and I actually would walk after school. Um, it was in a little uh, town called Augusta, Georgia, and, and located in the downtown area. And we would walk after school to the library and hang out there until our parents were able to pick us up from the library. And it was a big, beautiful marble building. And that was when I first got into things like uh, Michael Crichton and Stephen King and mm-hmm. Dean Koontz, you know, all the good, trashy, horror, sci-fi type stuff. And then a little later, things like uh, Kurt Vonnegut and all that. Ben, I'm sure you have lovely library memories too, don't you? I do. Yes, I do, Noel. I was a kid who would do his best to live at uh, libraries growing up uh, as an only child. I didn't have uh, nor desire any friends. Uh, so I would I would hang out uh, and the very, very kind librarians that I hung out with would just sort of make up chores and then give me give me free books that they were going nice. to get rid of. Yeah, it was it was a really cool apprenticeship. Uh, librarians, if you are hearing this, uh, first, thank you for giving a kid such wonderful summers. And secondly, I'm sorry that I did not, in fact, grow up to be a librarian. It's tough. You got to get a master's in library science. Like if you see a librarian, be nice to them because they're doing it's it's a passion project. Max, what about, what about you, man? What's your uh, what's your library vibe like growing up? So library vibe was a thing I, I I guess I had in my life. Um, 
You know, we would go to the uh, local library, especially back when we lived in Michigan more so. But, you know, as a kid, you know, it was a, it was a free resource for us to use. So, you know, go there, get on those really antiquated computers. Even for the time, they were antiquated. <laughs> and, you know, type into that really awful uh, search system to try to find something that never worked and then go find it myself. Yeah, yeah, with the card catalog, the microfiche. We'll see... You know, the uh, three of us, and hopefully you, fellow ridiculous historian, uh, we were really lucky to have those those childhood experiences in libraries. But there was a time not too long ago when our parents would have been seen as very irresponsible for letting us get anywhere near a library because today's episode is about something called the Great Book Scare, which seriously kept people out of libraries for almost 50 years. Yeah, and it's not too far off from some of the fears that we're dealing with right now in our mm-hmm. post-COVID world, because uh, this was not a you know banned book situation. This was not a uh, Fahrenheit 451 dystopian future where like books were considered to be seditious or in some ways you know infecting the minds of the youth. No, this was about a different kind of infection, an actual infection that you really could get several, in fact, by touching stuff: smallpox, scarlet fever. And tuberculosis, the old triumvirate. So the idea of passing around community property or things that were, you know, borrowed and handled and passed around to different folks was terrifying. So it actually was an attitude that persevered for around 40 years. The idea that even after these these diseases had been dealt with, again, like we're dealing with now, I think there are going to be things that have happened as a result of covid that are going to continue to be with us for some time. Oh, absolutely. And uh, we want to give a shout out to Andrew McClary uh, and his uh, work in the Journal of Library History called Beware the Deadly Books, a Forgotten Episode in Library History. This has also been written about in Bustle, in Smithsonian Mag, and in Mental Floss. You nailed it, Noel. You absolutely nailed it. For people who remember the early stages of the coronavirus pandemic, one thing you probably heard pretty often was uh, speculation about how long the virus could remain on a given surface, how long it could remain on metal versus paper versus wood versus plastic, things like that. And people thought during a number of diseases and public health epidemics, uh, people were certain that books could be a vector for disease. Our story really starts with a guy named W.F. Poole. He was a librarian in Chicago, and he was at a library director's meeting in 1879 when he said, I've heard people asking whether books can transmit disease as effectively as any other inanimate object. No one really knew the answer, and no one had really heard of the question before at this meeting. So, old W.F., Mr. Poole, writes to the foremost medical authorities in the United States, and then uh, he also writes to librarians at the largest libraries in the country, and he asks them the same question. He gets 19 replies, and only one person was ever able to uh, say they had at least heard of a disease being transmitted by a book. It was Surgeon General Dr. John S. Billings who 
didn't confirm this had happened. He said, you know, I heard about something kind of like this, maybe in London. And then the other 18 people who write back, they say, well, I guess it could happen, but it doesn't seem likely. You know, a lot of these people are librarians. They're like, I deal with books all the time and I don't have smallpox. I don't have scarlet fever. So maybe. And then some doctors come in and they're trying to sort of sow the middle ground, right? They're saying, okay, well, how about this? If you're a librarian, don't loan books out to people who you know have smallpox or tuberculosis, or as you said, no, scarlet fever. Just don't give books to uh, houses that have those people living in them. Exactly. And then we have Dr. Henry Lyman, who is coming out against this and saying he's with Chicago's Rush Medical College. Uh, and he's coming out and saying that this is absolutely much to do about nothing. People are overreacting. He kind of snidely suggests hiring somewhere in the neighborhood of 15,000, quote, sanitary policemen um, to uh, literally guard people from entering these infected homes and to deliver children to uh, school in these glass cages and to personally sterilize anything that's passing through the U.S. postal system. But that wasn't he didn't, he didn't really do a very good job of quieting people's concerns because newspapers were all over this and they were doing some serious fear-mongering uh, and specifically targeting these, these disease-spreading books. This is from Smithsonian Magazine, by the way, a fabulous article uh, about the Great Book Scare by Joseph Hayes. We highly recommend checking it out in its entirety. We also have a really uh, telling quote from the Chicago Tribune that was published on June 29th of 1879, talking about contracting all sorts of diseases from these books, um, so, you know, admittedly saying that the chances were small. It, would also, it all depended on the publication, you know, as, as far as the level of like fear mongering that was happening, um, but that it couldn't be ruled out. It certainly was possible, which you could argue was, was, was relatively um Thoughtful journalism was relatively responsible way of reporting this. But then on November 12th, 1886, you have the Perrysburg Journal saying that books, quote, books are one of the items to be removed from the rooms of the sick. Uh, so you starting to like pass around these little details. And then the Ohio Democrat says in the most extreme version of really trying to rile people up about this. The disease, referring to scarlet fever, has been spread by circulating libraries. Picture books have been taken therefrom to amuse the patients and returned without being disinfected. Wowzers. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at HighFiveCasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumberFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. 
So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This Father's Day, shop at the Home Depot to find the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. He's the weed-fighting, hedge-trimming, leaf-blowing lord of the lawn. He sees the job, and he gets it done. Because your dad is a doer. So show him you appreciate everything he does with the tools he needs to power up his landscaping game. This Father's Day, give him the convenience and gas-like power of innovative and durable Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad does, everything he is, and everything he can be, find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. It might sound a little silly now, but we have to we have to remember that uh, here at the beginning of the 20th century, for a lot of people, life was terrifying. The leading cause of death in the United States was tuberculosis, which they called either like consumption, white death, or white plague. Uh, this disease was killing around about this time. This disease was killing 450 people in the country a day. And they were, uh, they were across the gamut of ages, 15 to 44. And they were already really concerned about an incurable, potentially fatal disease. And the idea of library books, which was a, a very affordable, wonderful means of self-education, uh, the, the idea that these could become a vector for disease seemed very plausible and very real. And this is strange because there's a lot of stuff that a lot of people were touching on a daily basis. Handles, right? Doorknobs, sure. things like that. Oh, yeah. And, and so library books got singled out for a specific reason. The idea was that because library books have multiple pages and every page is two surfaces that it could trap germs. They were aware of germ theory, that it could trap germs in pages and that when you open the book, just like when you open a book and you get that nice old book or new book smell, mm -hmm. that what you could be inhaling germs just as easily or someone could be reading and they could <coughs> uh, cough I guess sort of like a frog in that example, onto the paper, and then that would hold the germs. Also, let's not forget, public libraries, kind of a new thing, because the public could be anybody, right? That's very true. Um, it's very true. It's a very, very helpful resource for the community, but it's true that you can't really exclude people, uh, which probably really riled up members of the upper crust that maybe thought that sort of the unwashed masses could potentially have handled a book that would then be passed on to like, you know, their child or spouse mm -hmm. or whatever. Although many of them probably couldn't be bothered to uh, go to public libraries because they would have their own uh, libraries, you know, in their in their palatial estates. But then, <laughs> wouldn't a lot of this have to do with a a, a, a very um, distinct misunderstanding of of how disease vectors work and how long they're able to survive on surfaces and things like that? Yeah, yeah, and not all diseases are created uh, the same way. 
it was interesting because public libraries, like we said, they're kind of new. So there are a lot of questions that people have about them. You don't really know who checked out the book before you. You might see a name written on the inside jacket in some cases, mm -hmm. you know, with a little card. But you don't know that person from Adam. You don't know them from a can of paint. And there was this uh, cool article, Smithsonian Mag Quotes, from 1988 that was titled Books as Disease Carriers from 1880 to 1920. And people were worried that not only might they get these this trifecta of terrible diseases by inhaling book dust, but people were also worried they could get cancer. Like someone had cancer, they read a book, you read the same book, and boom, you have you have cancer now. You have cancer and you were being punished because you wanted to learn more about Shakespeare. That's what you get. That's your Midsummer's Night Dream. Uh, but this was this was alarmist, right? Um, this was alarmist, but again, because people really were dying, and because libraries and the idea of commonly shared books across a large population was a relatively new idea, this took hold. Concerns started in the U.S., but let's go back to our Surgeon General who said, I may have heard of a case like this at some point in London. People in England started having the same concerns around the same time, at least according to Annika Mann, who's a professor at Arizona State University and an author about this very event, Reading Contagion, The Hazards of Reading in the Age of Print. And then we really start to see this very reactionary uh, legislation start to sweep the United Kingdom that was really trying to address what they saw as a very, very serious public health problem. Uh, and so they passed uh, this collection of laws called the Public Health Act of 1875. And while it didn't specifically list library books or target the public library, it very specifically had this language in it. Quote, it prohibited uh, lending or borrowing, quote, bedding, clothing, rags, or other things hmm. that had been exposed to infection. So I think you see where this is going. Other things, it's about as broad as, as you can imagine uh, language to, to get. Right. <laughs> other things uh, is it, it's easy to interpret that that other things are anything that is not explicitly bedding, clothing or rags. 1907, they update this beautiful little law by saying if you are in, suspected, not proven, but suspected of having an infectious disease, you cannot borrow, lend, or return library books. You'll get fined up to 40 shillings for each offense. That's around 200 bucks. So yeah. this, is, this is not small pocket money for a lot of people. And we know that this, we, we have the specific language of the law. We know that in the U.S., they were also trying to prevent the spread of epidemics through book lending. But being the U.S. at this time, there wasn't a federal level law at this point. It was a state level thing. And most of, according to Mann, most of the anxiety was centered around the concept of the book, the concept of the shared book, the concept mm -hmm. of the library, which means, you know, who becomes kind of public enemy number one? librarians that's right the librarian all along <laughs> this this did a worse public image number for librarians than ghostbusters <laughs> right it, it's i'm i'm laughing because 
every single librarian that I've had the privilege of meeting has has been a wonderful, knowledgeable, and and passionate person. So, oh, of course. And you know, not to be put too fine a point on the pun, but a bit bookish. So. Yeah. <laughs> a little introverted. They are, uh, they are out there doing God's work. There's no question. Um, you know, and they also sometimes get a bad rap for being a little pedantic and shushy. But again, I blame Ghostbusters for that. Remember the shush? It was mm-hmm. like the opening scene. It's like the cold open of the movie. And then that's one of the biggest jump scares that to this day still kind of freaks me out when mm-hmm. she finally does the final shush and they don't shush. And uh, she turns into a spooky Muppet monster and flies right at the screen. And the Ghostbusters title emerges. Exactly. I also want to shout out one of my favorite, since we're in that era of film, I want to shout out one of my favorite librarian scenes in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, when they're trying to get into the catacomb that's hidden in that library, and there's that librarian who temporarily thinks he has this amazing book stamp because that's when Indy is knocking the nice. floor loose. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, just, yeah. It was just a good. It was. It was a good. It was a good spot. But what do you uh, prefer, Last Crusade or a uh, 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 Temple of Doom? Last Crusade. What about Raiders? What, what do you like? Rank them Ooh. for me really quickly. I know we're Ooh. off the, to the topic. Well, this is this is, this is just, important uh, stuff. Yeah, and uh, I want to use my lifeline uh, to phone a friend here to get Max's opinion as well as your own, Noel. Uh, for me, Last Crusade, I that that is far and away my favorite. And then maybe Raiders, actually. Uh, Temple of Doom is a little bit lower for me because although I love the the cult aspect and there's a little bit of supernatural in there as well, I don't know, even as a kid— the stuff they got wrong culturally kind of bugged oh, me. Oh, yeah. Did not age well. The monkey brains and baby snakes and stuff. And just that's it definitely didn't age well. For me, I would say it would be Raiders. I'm sorry, it would be uh, Last Crusade Raiders, mainly because of uh, Sean Connery playing uh, Indy's father. I love mm-hmm. his role. And then Temple of Doom third. How about you, Max? Um, I have only seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. Get out. Whoa! Do not ostracize me. Hey. Do not ostracize <laughs> me. We get pottery shards. No, uh, Max. This is what we're gonna do. We're gonna get. We're gonna get together. We're gonna watch Last Crusade. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. It, uh, but but what, what about the Crystal Skull? Can we watch that? No, that, that doesn't even. That doesn't even rank. That that one does. That's not even in the conversation. Yeah, I'm okay. I knew that. I knew that would set you guys off. I'm okay <laughs> with it. You know, there's some stuff about the Crystal Skulls that I liked. I don't. I don't want to spoil it, but um, yeah, a lot of people don't consider that canon uh, actually. Uh, but we want to hear your rankings. I want to know why um, <laughs> we named the dog Indiana. Anyway, these books, you know, uh, like Stand and Deliver, where he says these kids. Uh, this. This idea of librarians being victimized, of uh, people in the U.S. and people in England being already kind of anxious of the possibility that books might spread subversive or obscene ideas, uh, this this is a perfect storm. But just like the weird advice you may have gotten about groceries in the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, people started trying to figure out ways to disinfect books. Uh, there is um, there's a library in Sheffield, England, that employs a disinfection technique in 1888 using, get this, carbolic acid crystals heated in an oven. Oh, that sounds scary. It sounds a little overdone, doesn't it? Sounds like it'd take the top layer of skin off while it disinfected you. <laughs> um, that's wild. Carbolic acid. Okay. Uh, I'm no uh, chemist, but that definitely sounds like a little bit extreme. 
1888, Great Britain was in the throes of a serious smallpox epidemic. And we do know that smallpox was insanely communicable. I mean, really, really virulent and transmit transmittable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, some of the stuff maybe wasn't overkill. Like, I mean, we know that polio, for example, was something that could be transmitted to children through dolls or, you know, like clothes and bedding and things like that. You, you see in uh, period dramas a lot of times through that period where they had to, like, take everything out and burn it, you know, not just uh, disinfect it. It was that much of a panic. So I understand where all this is coming from. But as it starts to kind of, you know, outlive the pandemic itself, it starts to get a little interesting. Yeah, yeah. And again, you know, we're not ridiculing these people. These were genuine concerns. And as Noel said, smallpox is very dangerous here. So people started giving the authorities a list of all infected people that might have been interacting with the library. This is what we know now as contact tracing. And then they would find these folks and seize their books. If they weren't borrowing any books, then they would say you can't borrow any other ones until your entire household is disease-free. Back to W.F. Poole. He's still on the case. Uh, He is investigating the subject. He finds nine more doctors who say they know of diseases transmitted by books. Uh, One guy reports scarlet fever spread by book and letter to people. The president of the Tennessee Board of Health and the secretary of Massachusetts Board of Health cite cases of smallpox spread by books. Uh, Professor uh, Joseph E. Winters in City University of New York's Medical College says, you know what, we shouldn't remove people's right to knowledge, but if we have infected patients, uh, let's just give them, you know, not the best books. Let's give them the kind of books we can just destroy after they're done with them, the kind that won't make the library the worse for wear. And he's another acid guy, Noel. He's like, you know what we should do to disinfect books? He looks around, he's like, you guys, sulfuric acid gas, right? We can, only, to me. Yeah, we can only picture there's some there's some other people in the meeting where they're like, damn, Dr. Winters, why do you keep pushing sulfuric acid gas as your solution for everything? I like to picture that he was always pitching that. Maybe he had like a sideline in gas. What do you think? I don't know, man. It sounds like a secret sadist to me. It's a weird one, though, man, because, you know, even as they were doing this thing where they were comparing registers of the infected to library registers or, you know, those with library cards and excluding people from checking out books, it still didn't really quell the, like, public you know, panic around it. And the library system was like, which like you said, Ben was still relatively new, was really starting to take a hit. And it really kind of got what could have been its death blow. Um, in, uh, 1895 in Nebraska, when a woman named Jesse Allen died of the consumption. And this is something that happened all the time around, you know, in that period, it was, you know, again, like it's something you see in, in, in period dramas all the time. Uh, people, either, <laughs> and then you pull away the, the, the little nap napkin or the hanky. And of course there's blood in it. Um, but this woman though, happened to be the librarian or a librarian at the Omaha public library. And with no real proof, public opinion assumed that her death, uh, they, they, they ascribed it to the idea that she got it from an infected book. And we have a report uh, from October of 1895 from the Library Journal. 
um, that was published by the American Library Association. The death of Miss Jessie Allen is doubly sad because of the excellent reputation which her work won for her and the pleasant affection which all librarians who knew her had come to feel for her, and because her death has given rise to a fresh discussion as to the possibility of infection from contagious diseases through library books. The following is a high-five moment from HighFiveCasino.com. Would you like a hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won! Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing High Five Casino on my phone. Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. Yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie? Whoa! I won again! I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your High Five moment today? Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This Father's Day, shop at the Home Depot to find the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. He's the weed-fighting, hedge-trimming, leaf-blowing lord of the lawn. He sees the job, and he gets it done. Because your dad is a doer. So show him you appreciate everything he does with the tools he needs to power up his landscaping game. This Father's Day, give him the convenience and gas-like power of innovative and durable Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad does, everything he is, and everything he can be, find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. See, this is like the kind of thing we've talked about recently on Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, our other podcast. How, you know, you could argue that this is editorializing, right? This is the, oh, yeah. the, the person is putting forth this notion, is like just planting the seed of infected library books. And that's all it takes. There's no scientific evidence here that that's what the cause was. It was just talking about now the conversation has started again around infected library books, which is already one that had been, you know, very much happening. So it kind of pushed things over the cliff, didn't it? Yeah, I think you're right, No, because it, it's almost as if the zeitgeist was waiting for a librarian specifically to die, right? Now it all of a sudden supports the logic of this idea. And we know that the Library Journal tried to quell or at least temper people's concerns because they went on to say the following in the same article. Possibly there is some danger from this source. Since the bacillus was discovered, danger is found to lurk in places hitherto unsuspected. But the greater danger perhaps comes in overestimating this source of danger and frightening people into a nervous condition. That is, again, 
like I said, with that, it could happen, but it's unlikely right. type of journalism is probably a little more measured uh, and maybe a little less grabby and clickbaity, you know, the, 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 the historical equivalent of clickbait. But I would say this is the more measured and thoughtful approach. But people don't usually glom on to the more measured and thoughtful approach, do they? No, they don't. That's right. Uh, despite uh, good faith efforts, public libraries were unable to get this concern, founded or unfounded, out of the public mind. And people kept going in the media and in, you know, dinner table conversation. The fear just escalated. And for all our fellow ridiculous historians who are asking, well, when did they start burning the books? Now is the time in, in this story. It wasn't like people were already sterilizing books with chemicals by the 1900s, but eventually this escalated such that in Britain and in the U.S., people were burning books to prevent what they feared would be the spread of disease. And numerous doctors recommended that people burn contaminated, quote-unquote, contaminated books. This was even featured in the library journal itself, a trade publication for librarians. It's like, hey, sometimes, you know, I know you're a librarian, but sometimes you got to burn the book. Yeah, and it just got weirder, Ben, um, where they were literally beginning to do, you know, they, they didn't have the technology or the medical knowledge to truly trace these contagions sometimes, you know, um, especially if it was just suspected, you know, or again, because of the how long do things actually stay viable, you know, when they're in a dry situation, like pressed between the pages of a book. It's not the same as like having like anthrax in a book. It's not just going to like pop out at you like an envelope of anthrax. And then the spores that are live are going to like go all over the room and like infect everybody. I mean, these things, if placed there by an infected person they cannot live they cannot cannot remain viable in you know forever right mm -hmm. so they kind of the awareness was there that maybe we need to do a little more research into this but it just got so bizarre in 1911 in an article called the disinfection of books this hysteria was absolutely uh escalated and pushed to the next level. This was by L.B. Nice uh, and published in the Bulletin of the Medical Library Association. He said, books seem well adapted for carrying smallpox, measles, scarlet fever, trachoma, diphtheria, uh, arespolis, dysentery, typhoid, and tuberculosis. Uh, yet so far as I have been able to find no satisfactory method for the disinfection of books is being used anywhere in this country. Books are a particular diversion of invalids and convalescents. In other words, saying that people that are like in the hospital have nothing to do to pass the time but read books. Therefore, they are in much danger of becoming infected, they being the books. So yeah, I mean... Uh, really fanning the flames here. He goes on to say, besides the danger of contamination in these ways and in the ordinary handling of a book, many people persist in the uncleanly habits of moistening their fingers in their mouths when turning the page leaves. Which is gross. It is My gross. Opinion. It's objectively gross. I Max agree. is on board. That's gross. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is, this feels like an escalation of worry, but again, it's coming from good intentions. One scientist, William R. Rennick, says, okay, let's figure out if that really works. So he cuts out the dirtiest parts of pages from 
very well-used library books, mixes the paper with saline, centrifuges the liquid, and then injects it into 40 guinea pigs. According to him, all 40 of his test subjects died of strep, tuberculosis, and sepsis. And then other people were conducting experiments giving monkeys a drink of milk on a, a platter of what was thought to be contaminated literature. All these experiments, like you said, Noel, are real weird, but they came to one conclusion. The risk of infection from a book might be very small, but it couldn't be completely ruled out. We already knew that just from like speculation. Right. You have to imagine you have to mess with the poor guinea pigs. Oh, I hate that. Me too, man. Me too. And so eventually, luckily, for readers around the world, your faithful host included, people began to say, look, is this just kind of an outbreak of public hysteria and fear because we feel powerless in the face of some of these um, infections and maladies? Librarians, someone finally points out, aren't getting sick more often than people with other jobs. And so librarians begin to address the panic directly in New York, people started uh, objecting to the idea of having books disinfected. The panic began to subside in Britain because experiment after experiment found the same thing, that you had very little chance of getting one of these diseases from a book. And so the panic finally came to an end, sort of, mostly, caveat, Asterisk, because we know how people are. As late as 1913, the Highland Recorder, a newspaper in Virginia, said public library books may scatter scarlet fever. In the 1940s, people in the UK and even Japan were still saying, well, what if books could give you a disease? Luckily for all of us, that seems you might as well win the lottery, at least in the way these folks were thinking of it. And Noel, I think that brings us to like our last question of the day. Yep, yep. We can't be the only ones thinking this. I, I got to ask you. Yeah. How dirty are library books actually? It's a good question, Ben. And we do have something of an answer from infectious disease specialist Michael Z. David, um, who was quoted uh, by the Wall Street Journal in a piece that we found through a mental floss article. How many degrees of Kevin Bacon is that? Um, he said that viruses and bacteria can live in the pages of library books, but the risk of infection is very, very low. Libraries today do still clean their books in the same way that like you clean bowling shoes, right? I mean, it's just kind of a thing you do with anything that's like passed around. It's, it's, it's just, it's just good practice. Good, good, good standard operating procedure at the Boston library. Mental floss reported, uh, the books go through what is sort of a, amounts to kind of like a tiny car wash conveyor belt. Obviously it's not wetting them. That would totally ruin the books, but it's just to remove uh, dust from the pages and dust, you know, as we know, often, Oftentimes is like dead skin cells and all kinds of things get mixed up in dusts. You know, there's certainly if you have if you ever taken a big old whiff of dust and sucked it down your throat. I mean, God knows what's in there. And you certainly uh, not going to feel very good after you've done that. Uh, a, because it like really hurts. <laughs> it goes down your throat and uh, you kind of feel it in your lungs. And B, because there could be some, you know, contaminants in there. There's no question about it. Um, mm. But library books can have 
some nasty things hiding in those pages. In 2013, uh, Belgium's Antwerp Public Library did a test mm-hmm. and found traces of cocaine. And um, herpes. And herpes, that's fair. But what do we talk about, Ben? We've said this many times in the past. A money Money is yes. the grossest thing ever <laughs> and the most community, you know, uh, item that, that we pass around. And money oftentimes has uh, high instances of having cocaine traces. And traces is the uh, the operating word here because these were minuscule amounts. And Antwerp is apparently quite the uh, drug trafficking epicenter. But it doesn't that doesn't really account for the, the herpes. Yeah, well, it's definitely not enough cocaine to get you uh, a high or uh, it's not enough uh, herpes virus to give you herpes. Also, I love that you point that out. It's one of my favorite statistics. A ton of paper currency is you don't need to worry about cocaine. You don't need to worry about coronavirus. That stuff is riddled with human feces. Like 40%. Totally. Uh, uh, This is the gross out fact for the day. Apologies to... Any of the many awesome educators who are playing today's episode for your classroom, but your kids are going to love this. Uh, It is virtually certain that you have encountered traces of human feces if you have touched any paper U.S. currency. If that makes you want to wash your hands right now, please get the to a washroom (laughs) because it, it will be worth it. But I'm just so glad, you know, that libraries are still around. Uh, right now, Mich- I think it was 2020, Michigan asked people not to microwave their books. That's right, because uh, of coronavirus. Right, but it won't, it, it, it won't kill it. Well, not only will it not kill it, they were asking for a specific reason because the new way of cataloging library books is through these little, like, scannable RFID chips, which mm-hmm. contain ding, 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 metal. And right. if you put that in the microwave, it will cause the book to burst into flames. So, yes. Yeah. Good note. Don't microwave your books. That's one of the other takeaways. Uh, and this uh, this will wrap our episode for today. We want to hear your stories. You know, no, Max, I, do you think we have some librarians in the audience? Some folks who well, have their masters in library science? Holly Fry of Stuff That You Missed in History Class, if I'm not mistaken, in a past life was a librarian. Amazing, amazing. Uh, So thank you to all the librarians, not just you, but thank you to all the scientists. Thank you to all the bibliophiles in the crowd today. And thanks to our super producer, Max Williams, who to our knowledge has never microwaved a book. Right, Max? Don't put it, don't leave us hanging here. What? Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Moving on. Thanks to Alex Williams, who composed our track, our soundtrack. Can't speak to his book, Microwaving Habits, either, but I know he's a avid, voracious reader, so I have a hard time believing that he would ever do something so uh, offensive to, to the written word. Huge thanks to Christopher Hasiotis here in spirit, Eve's Jeffcoat, who actually, you know what? Uh, she recently left the company mm-hmm. um, to pursue adventures on her own, and we love you, and we will miss you very much much ease look for great things from her uh, in the future she's a really awesome person and we're very proud of her and has never left our hearts uh, speaking of that we did mention in a previous episode uh, that i think all three of us kind of miss our old nemesis uh, who has infected our hearts and minds jonathan strickland aka the quister look forward to hearing from him very soon and with that noel max peek behind the curtain i think i'm gonna i think i'm gonna go find an isolated part of this uh, 
of this situation I'm in and, and go dig into a book. I think that's a smart idea. Get you a nice beach read on. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The following is a high-five moment from HighFiveCasino.com. Welcome to Burger Yippee. Would you like a hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won! Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing High Five Casino on my phone. Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. Yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie? Woo! <laughs> I won again! I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your High Five moment today? Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash covers your skin in layers of rich moisturizers and vitamin B3 complex, transforming your skin from dry and dull to moisturized, soft and smooth in just 14 days. Feel the best in your skin and glow with confidence, all pride. For the third year, Olay Body is a proud sponsor of iHeartRadio and PNG's Can't Cancel Pride and supporter of the LGBTQ plus community. So this pride glow with confidence, not just all month, but all year long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of 1 carat plus and receive a free natural 1 carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com.